I'm here to introduce the next panel um, called Utopia or Dystopia, Ways of Telling Stories About the Future. And we've got Rax Media Collective joining us from India. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Thank you. Thanks, George. And I will give you a quick introduction to our panelists and a brief mention about my interest in, first of all, Rux Media Collective, who have joined us from New Delhi and my sphere of expertise is in South Asian art. So I've written a lot about their work, which I urge you to go and see if you haven't already. Um, Rucks are phenomenally important within the context of contemporary art globally, but also very much embedded within the art world in India. They were formed in 1992 with Monica Nurala, Jibesh Bakshi, and Shuddha Sengupta. And the word rux um, in several languages denotes an intensification of awareness and presence attained by whirling, turning, being in a state of revolution. And rux take this sense to mean kinetic contemplation and a restless and energetic entanglement with the world and with time. So rux practices across several media and you might have seen some of their work. They were commissioned by the 2020 Commission and they did a fantastic piece that was shown at Focal Point Gallery in Essex. Um, they've also worked internationally in Doha. They work with video performance, text, curation, and they're a real center point for many artists in India and further afield. Dr. Caroline Edwards is Senior Lecturer in Modern and Contemporary Literature at Birkbeck, um, University of London, where she's the Director of the Centre for Contemporary Literature. And her research focuses on utopian possibility as it intersects with questions of aesthetic form, genre, temporality, political subjectivity, and post-inhuman agency in literature as well as popular, cultural, and performative texts. She's the author of Utopia and the Contemporary British Novel and co-editor of China Meville Critical Essays and Maggie Gee Critical mm -hmm. Essays and also the editor of the Cambridge Companion to British Utopian Literature and Culture. So we're joined by some phenomenal people. I'm going to start by asking Rux to reflect on their commission, The Waves Are Rising, and the process that led them to this form. know more about what's um, out there in, in deep space than we know what's actually deep under the oceans. It is an unknown, untraveled realm which churns with power. And um, as a matter of fact, um, and we were in conversation with Mark, if I remember, who was on the last panel, who uh, reminded us that people in London, probably in the, in the 18th and the 19th centuries, had more awareness of this uh, aspect of the sea because ships were... Um, the main mode of transport. As a matter of fact, ships are still the, um, a huge uh, aspect of how the global economy works. All the things that we think that we know come from other places in the world and so much of the things that we use do come on ships. But these um, monstrous, monstrous ships that are sailing across the seas have far fewer people and we, we send, tend to pay less attention to them. So we were thinking of all of this, of the power of the seas, of the force that it of the force that it carries in global economy and how does one become recognizant of that again? So 
in order to do that, we defamiliarized, alienated the dock landscape by bringing onto it the history of the wave, uh, how people have imagined the wave, have drawn the wave. Um, so you can see, you know, elements of Hokusai's wave. You can see drawings that, um, you know, from Tibetan traditions of drawing to just abstract ideas of what water does, um, all the way to more contemporary ideas of, 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 of how water is drawn um, to remind us that the surge of the wave, the power of the water is enormous. Did you also work with specific academics aside from Mark on this piece? Yes, we also worked with Tristan Smith and Andrew Hudson Smith. Uh, conversations about um, so winds and the, you know the force of the wind as much as the force of water, um, and of course specifically talking a lot more about um, the climate implications of the things that we take for granted, but are um, you know what what we we think of as um, as people have been talking about in the last panel too. Yes, things happen, but you know how does it concern me perhaps? And Shuda, do you want to say anything about the process and why specifically you chose this sort of live feed form? Um, well, I think it's also to, to make um, the visitor a witness and the idea that um, waves can rise at any point of time um, and to disturb this notion of the controlled bodies of water that Monica was talking about. There's been this ambiguity about um, about oceans and and about the climate for a while. Actually, I mean, it's interesting to have someone on the panel who's a who studies dystopian and utopian science fiction, because I remember reading Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea as a child, and Captain Nemo, who um, incidentally is a fugitive from India and pilots a submarine, talks about this kind of ambiguity that the sea can be. We, that we can be custodians of the sea, we can be present in the sea, or we can destroy the sea. Uh, and that's a novel from 1872. Um, 20 years later, we have um, a, a, an Indian scientist, Jagadish Bose, who writes this kind of whimsical science fiction story uh, called The Runaway Cyclone, which begins with a series of meteorological predictions from meteorological stations in Calcutta and elsewhere, and finally in London, about this enormous cyclone that's going to devastate the coastline of East, eastern India. And everything changes when a man um, on a sea voyage is given um, a bottle of hair oil by his daughter, and he thinks that he can spill the hair oil in the water and that will calm things down. So it's like a premonition of what would be called the butterfly effect. And what is interesting is that, I mean, of course, it's completely whimsical, but it's interesting in the sense that it talks about the interaction of materials. And I think that when we look at the sea, we don't understand it as a material force. And that whether um, it's Neil Stevenson, who's now written a book called, I think, Termination um, Shock. Shock, Shock, Termination Shock, which thinks in terms of geoengineering new materials to have cooling across the world. You know, it's, it's a very fanciful idea, but which will then again lead to, a, to lowering of sea levels, but will also lead to climate catastrophe of a different kind, let's say in southern parts of the world. We tend to think of global warming as the only possible uh, modus of climate catastrophe. But if temperatures were to suddenly start cooling again, and we can have 
mini ice ages within the long arc of global warming, those can also lead to tremendous uh, consequences. So the idea of being a witness to the material forces of the sea, to think of it as this rising current, to think of uh, being able to imagine a little bit of its power and its unruliness and the contributions we make to making the waves rise again is, I think, the reason why we have this combination of the live feed with you as a witness looking out through this kind of window at, at, the, do at the docks and then suddenly seeing the waves rise. So in the work that you were doing, were there any texts that you found that might have ever considered this rising level historically? Or was it very much, because I imagine this area is coated in this exciting narrative of the trade, the opportunities, the people that were coming and going. Was there ever a neuroses about this water that you found in your work? The, the beginning, the starting point in our research was actually a location not far from the Royal Docks. It's not near, but it's not far. It was called the Stranger's Home for Asiatics. And it, it was built around 1858 when unruly weather caused a lot of ships to cancel their return voyages to Africa and Asia. And it led to this mass of um, sailors, Laskers, as they're called, on the streets of London. And there were this kind of presence as strangers. Um, we tried to find this place. We found traces of it, but very little other than, you know, stray arc stray mentions in the archives, but it pointed us in the direction of thinking of the sea as a stranger. And I think that was an important um, way of thinking mm -hmm. about the sea. Also, uh, very few people remember that one of the first texts of journalism in the world, of reportage, is Daniel Defoe's wonderful book on the great storm of London which is 1703 or, so, or four or something. And it talks about the incredible effect of a storm and of how ships fall like pins into the water, of the incredible psychological effects of seeing this turbulence unleashed. So there were things like that that we were looking at, that we were looking at sea monsters, we were looking at, in our own um, epic traditions, the idea of monsters that rise from the sea, which turned in some cases in this depiction into tetrapods, you know, the things that are used to reclaim land, um, these structures from, from the sea, from the sea, these kind of 3D geometrical structures that are used everywhere, probably even in London, to, to make land out of sea. So all of these went into the way we were thinking about the wave, its energy, as well as what lies hidden beneath it. Thank you so much for expanding on that. And then to bring Caroline in, Caroline, you have, I presume, come across a lot of neuroses about water in your work um, and storytelling around water. Just to connect these two works, could you tell us a bit about how water might function as a site for the utopic or dystopic? Yeah, thank you very much. Actually... I wanted to pick up on a point that was just made about the, the weirdness of the weather with the climate catastrophe. We're going to see increasingly um, you know, harsh temperatures, but at the same time, we may get sort of mini ice ages and we get sort of increased likelihood of tsunamis and rising sea levels. 
Some cultural scholars um, following on the work of Timothy Morton have started calling this weird weather. And the weirdness of the weather relates conceptually to um, the etymology of weird. We might think of the weird sisters that you know, are referenced in um, The Witches in Macbeth, that sense of weirdness and um, sort of the non-human and the supernatural. But it also relates to the literary weird, which is a distinctive literary kind of tradition that emerges in the late 19th century and, and through the decades of the early 20th century and is associated with people like H.P. Lovecraft, for example, who really conjured up with you know, a figure like Cthulhu, these alien monsters from the deeps of the sea that threatened mankind's survival. Um, and it's something that, and despite the, the, you know, the very problematic politics of H.P. Lovecraft, um, who was himself a, a racist um, figure, there are more contemporary writers such as China Mieville, who I've worked on a little bit, um, who pick up on this idea of the weird and are fascinated, I think, with um, really experimenting with genre. So we're talking about stories, we're talking about things to do with utopia and dystopia, these are not things, in my mind, that you can clearly separate. The majority of the works that I analyze, um, literary texts or artworks or otherwise, they're not one thing or the other. They are always already both. And I think that sense of, of weirdness and energy, that sense of the materiality of the sea and the kind of coming back of the depths to haunt us in the Anthropocene is, is something I find really compelling in the contemporary moment. And... To give you one kind of pertinent example, there was a fantastic exhibition at um, the Hayward Gallery at the end of last year called In the Black Fantastic that was curated by the writer and curator Echo Eschen. And it featured 11 contemporary artists, all um, black artists, uh, engaging with uh, ideas of African diaspora. And one of them, Ellen Gallagher, her works are just these kind of incredible um, reworkings of watery spaces, of bodies of water. And she draws on the idea of um, Drexia, which is this mythology that the, the women thrown overboard on the slave ships in the transatlantic slave trade, you know, when those slave captains needed to collect insurance money, and so the number of slaves lost whilst traveling at sea as their cargo, they could then claim back um, lost revenue on those people's lives. So the mythos is that these women eventually sink down into the sea and become a sort of mer people, and that they're, they're the children, because many of these women may have been pregnant, the children that they gave birth to then become the kind of more than human inhabitants of this black aquatopic space. This is not a straightforward utopia in any sense. We're talking about centuries of exploitation, historical genocidal violence, right? But it, it opens up, in trying to confront these difficult histories, Ellen Gallagher's really gorgeous works open up this sort of space of hope and space of reflection on what it means for black artists and black subjects, this sort of space of possibility. And I think... The reason why I'm so fascinated by her work and also figures such as Wangechi Mutu, who was also in that exhibition, and she's an artist and sculptor um, who's based in the US um, but was born in Kenya, and I've been writing about her artworks recently it, alongside contemporary literary novels, is that they're really pushing the boundaries between species. And I think this does rehearse something that we saw in those earlier sort of 19th century stories 
Um, you know, th this is the time in the in the late in the late 19th century. We've got um, figures like H.G. Wells and and Verne and others, and they're publishing their fiction in these magazines that are being commercially produced for a newly literate populace, particularly in a place like London, where you had a lot of technical workers. You had people like Wells himself who've gone and studied. Uh, um, uh, where the Imperial London now is, uh, near all the museums in South London. And they didn't have clear generic boundaries between sort of things that involved tentacles, things that, that had horror tropes, things that involved science and utopian ideas about automation in the future. They were all kind of mixed up. And I see that a lot with contemporary art and contemporary writers, and it speaks very strongly, I think, to what Julie was um, referencing in the previous panel about the need to think beyond the human. I mean, we are fast approaching a tipping point, as Aaron Bastani put it, if we're not already there. And I think these texts, the sea is one of these spaces in which we can think through what would a more than human character look like and why is that important. And to bring in Monica Schiller, you have also worked with a lot of not specifically text that you just referenced, but the utopic and the dystopic. As artists, for you, what do those texts, and if you could sort of maybe identify some of the more salient ones, what do they provide you as a collective? Sure, I think we come from very different perspectives, I imagine, uh, on um, on what, what you're asking. So it's, it's fascinating to read science fiction or the larger fantastic realm, right? Where, which is a, such a catch-all phrase for all the, all the worlds that people make which acknowledge the reality of this one but wish to remake it or extend it or ask questions of it. So um, there's, in, I mean, Kim Stanley Robinson was just talked about earlier, Paolo Bacigalopi, China Muriel, all of these, uh, Neil Stevenson, these are the men that we've, you know, who I think are writing contemporary in, in the present moment and are acknowledging uh, the specific terms, especially of, of climate. But in some ways, it's always, it's, you know, it also serves us to sort of extend uh, the question of the utopic or the dystopic into sort of at least what I'm interested in is the kind of the larger question of what is it that is, why constitute the world that you constitute, right? Like why um, ask it to be more? And what is it that you want that world to, to offer and in a way, like when we did the Shanghai, when we curated the Shanghai Biennale, actually had been, uh, I had been reading this book, um, The Three-Body Problem by Si Xin Liu, uh, which is a sprawling three-volume um, saga, actually. But saga is the wrong word. But it, what it's interested in profoundly um, is the question of, is the human race worth saving? So in a way, it sort of shifts back from not only the question of is it a good world or a bad world, but the question of asking ourselves, why is it that we wish to survive as a species? Why is it that we wish to save ourselves as a species? And what is it that, um, that drives us? So it's not just a question of simple uh, life and therefore worth saving, right? So it becomes a more interestingly asked question. It's, I won't even get into trying to sort of tell you what the story is, but one thing it does use beautifully as a metaphor is the fact that when you have two objects that are in relationship to each other, then you can map their gravitational pull and how they're entangled, at least gravitationally. But the moment you have more than two, the moment a third enters, it becomes much more complicated. You cannot predict what's going to emerge. What it, what it, 
the, the conceit it does use is that when you have more than two objects, it is very difficult. It is un unpredictable, the relationship that will emerge, gravitationally speaking. You can't map it. And I think this question of what is it that emerges when we acknowledge that it is more than um, just you or I. I mean, we are in a collective of three. So we've thought about this question of, you know, once you are not an individual, not a binary, but you are a multitude, um, things change. And what is it that is it what is it that that multitude is made up of? And I think more recently there is an acknowledgement of the fact that it's not just the human that there is more than human. Um, narratively speaking, I think the the role um, the role of the mythic or the the under mythic or the over mythic is another way of extending who is it that inhabits the multitude with us. Because even if things may not be real, if we live with them. They affect us. And that affect, um, that reality, which is in a way what we're trying to do with the waves uh, piece as well, you bring the wave as an affect into the into the consciousness, right? It changes the terms of, of, of your narrative making and therefore of the world that you wish to be part of. Yeah. Um, I mean, in terms of different kinds of reading, I think that we're also constantly reading the way people think about the ocean, not just as literature, but also in terms of how they observe it. Uh, a work that we once made called More Salt in Your Tears came out of um, conversations that Monica had with oceanographers in the, in the Baltic Sea, because um, the salinity of the Baltic Sea is a kind of um, index of global warming. If more water rises in the Atlantic and moves through the narrow channel into the Baltic Sea, makes it saltier than it is. And in fact, the index of salinity of the Baltic Sea is that it is less salty than human tears. So the moment it crosses the threshold and moves into being more salty than human tears, we know we're in trouble. So we found it quite intriguing that there were these scientists measuring the salinity of Baltic Sea every day, more or less. And, uh, to compare with your tears. Yeah. Uh, but also other things. I think Amitabh Ghosh's new long essay, The Nutmeg Curse, has been quite... I mean, I think a lot of people are beginning to read their histories against this idea of the forgetting or the aphasia or, or the inability to speak about climate and literature. Although I think it, it's a bit of an overstated case. I mean, one can read um, ways of thinking about climate in, in everything from Ulysses to... Um, to 19th century Bengali poetry or, or Turner's, or Turner's paintings course. or, but amongst recent things, I mean, we are traveling to Nigeria in a, in a few days. And um, I've been reading this Nigerian American science fiction writer, Nanedi Okorafor. Okay. And she has been, she's, she's quite obsessed with the ocean as an alien um, space, uh, as a kind of inner outer space. And, and life forms that come from the ocean and what the ocean can teach us by way of allegory and myth and, and possibility. So those are, those are ways of thinking about, um, about language and about, I remember there was a work that we did recently for an exhibition on petroleum and oil in Norway at, at, in, an, in one of those coastal towns, Stavanger, which is an oil town. And we worked with a Norwegian poet who's devised a language, a future language, which is partly Norwegian, partly English, partly Arabic, partly Chinese, which will be spoken on the oil rigs of tomorrow. 
and and we devised a kind of form of speech that emerged from the sea and from the future. Uh, it's interesting to think about the fact that the only way we can talk about the future is actually to tell stories, because the future isn't a fact. It's always a speculation. And that means that fiction and thinking in a fictive mode about the presence of the future in our in, in presence, which is something that we think about a lot, that the future is not far away, it's all, all sort of lurking in our in our time, can only be done through stories and through allegory. And that's one way to look at it. Yeah, and I was um, going to ask you, Caroline, about um, today very much focusing on sort of moments of emergency. Do you find a blast of utopic literature when there have in the past been these reckoning moments? Or is that something that I'm totally loading on literary history? Yeah, it's an interesting question, isn't it? I mean, I'd like to make a clear distinction between the literary subgenre of utopia, which tends to be about a journey to a place and the presentation of an improved or in, process, in the process of improving alternative society um, you know, we find key moments in um, the last couple of centuries where utopian literature kind of proliferates. And one of those is sort of from the um, 1880s, 1890s period through to the 1910s. There was a huge proliferation of optimism about the future, of industrial progress leading towards a better and improved standard of living, of increased automation, making it possible for people to have that um, extension of their leisure time um, in which they could then... Um, enjoy creative pursuits and, and reimagine society in a very radical, transformative way. Um, we get another kind of moment of, of utopian literature popping up um, from the 1960s, 1970s period, and scholars call these critical utopias because they're, um, they're not as naively um, optimistic about the future. They accept that there are problems um, the, the, you know, the most obvious of which is the critique of authoritarianism, that if you build a utopian society, if you engineer it according to a blueprint of one great man, usually, as in Thomas More's utopia, which, by the way, doesn't deal with the problem of um, the exploitation of labor, and they still have indentured slaves and prisoners and so on, helping them construct that world, then, you know, the, the utopia sort of has hopeful moments, but also has problems with it. Um, so that's the subgenre of the literary utopia, which scholars would usually describe as connected to science fiction, if you think of science fiction as a sort of mode of speculative critique to reflect politically upon the present, which is also not the same thing as kind of sci-fi blockbuster movies, which often aren't as politically critical, perhaps, as we might wish. I might wish. Um, but utopianism actually is a set of powerful critical tools that cover all kinds of disciplines. So it's people working in architectural studies, political theory, continental philosophy, lit literary and cultural critique, people working in film and new media, um, video game design, you know, um, g just games generally, game studies. Uh, and so it, I, I have to kind of insist on this distinction because to come back to your question in a slightly roundabout kind of watery way, I think that actually I do find pockets of utopian, of what I would call the utopian impulse, 
which comes from the German philosopher Ernst Bloch, who is the most um, consequential of the utopian thinkers that we have in our kind of canon of utopian thought. So the utopian impulse can be discerned anywhere, and it can be discerned in some of the least likely places. I noticed during COVID, actually, because I think Mark was talking on the previous panel about how he... Um, he, he was disappointed that our, our desires for improvements, um, you know, during lockdown, we realized that actually growth isn't everything, that we really don't like commuting, that we'd much rather spend time with our families. And, and that kind of, that I think is a very strong utopian impulse towards a better kind of life. And I was really struck at the time by um, Grayson Perry and um, his wife, Philippa Perry, who had this TV show, um, which I'm, I'm not going to be able to remember the name of, but they, were, they sort of had this lockdown TV show, uh, Art Club, I think it was called, where everybody had to send in their own drawings of staring at the, you know, the waste bin in their kitchen because they hadn't left their house all day. There, there are utopian moments in there. And so some of the most utopian possibilities that I've discussed with my students when I'm teaching um, they, they, might, they might be relatively controversial, I'm going to give you one just quickly, the um, Dutch filmmaker Niels, Niels Geierhalter um, who makes these absolutely spectacular wide angled sort of documentary style films um, about extractivism and about production in, and about the meat industry in one um, he has one called Homo Sapiens and it's just, uh, I forget how long it is, it's not super long, like 90 minutes. Uh, it's about what would happen if humanity disappeared. We don't exactly know why we've disappeared. There are hints that there are gas masks and things, so there's, there's a tank at one point, you think maybe there's been a war. But it shows us all of the ruins of civilization um, as they have been rewilded. And the soundtrack, which is at some points... Um, is, is sort of, it, it is diegetic. So they did film in these real spaces and it's mainly birdsong. And so I make my students watch this film and the weirdest thing is that it's incredibly calming and very sort of mindful and very peaceful. And everyone comes out of this film saying we really enjoyed it, even though it is, it is a meditation on our own collective demise as a species. But I personally find something quite hopeful in the idea that the world continues um, the anthropologist Anna Lohmhaup Singh wrote an absolutely fantastic book that some of you may have heard of called The Mushroom at the End of the World. If you haven't heard of The Mushroom at the End of the World, definitely write it down and definitely go and get hold of a copy. It has been really influential and it's, been, um, it's part of a, a group of work with her colleagues on matsutake mushrooms. So these are um, a, a, very, a highly um, prized delicacy in Japanese culture, which ironically can't be grown in Japan in enough insufficient quantities anymore. So they have to be grown up in rural China and then they have to be imported back into Japan. And she's done this sort of commodity chain analysis of these mushrooms and how they've traveled. They got taken over to Europe and then um, another gr growing region is Portland, Oregon and up in the Pacific Northwest. And the reason why this book, which sounds a bit bizarre, has been so important to cultural criticism is because she has this uh, sort of very radical and insistent, hopeful process where she asks us to reflect on the power of mushrooms and mycelium, which are the, you know, the fungal, the rhizome part of the fungus. The fungus is the whole... Um, object, it's not a plant, it's not, a, it's not an animal, the mushrooms are the fruiting bodies, the, um, the mycorrhizal networks are 
what connect them together. It's one of the oldest living organisms. It will survive and it will endure. In fact, it can detoxify toxic landscapes. It, it can, they were the first thing that grew back in the radioactive um, areas around Chernobyl, for example, after the explosion. And so she sort of persuades us to try and, and imagine how we might become more mushroom-like ourselves and how we might think about these elements in the natural environment around us. And I get that that is quite a conceptual leap of faith to ask people to make. Um, but I think what strikes me most writing about literature and culture is the way in which artists, writers, filmmakers, even fashion designers who are using mushroom clothing and fabrics and so on, are really grabbing these ideas in a, in a defiantly utopian way. And I think that, that is very provocative. So we've got to be more mushroom. Be, be more mushroom, generally, yeah. Um, and um, Monica, before we sort of open to the floor, do you think about, with your work, how it can have, beyond the witness, how it can have positive change and positive change in the context of climate and helping sort of maybe our efforts to stop climate change so intensively? You know, I'm going to take this in a very roundabout way. You know, a couple of years ago, we were looking at um, artifacts found in a shipwreck, which is 2,000 years old. Um, and a couple of things emerged from that. One was a cup that had the words Pamphilos etched on it. Uh, Pam means everybody and Philos is friend or lover, as we know from all the other Philoses that we have. I wasn't clear if this was, was the name of somebody or this was an idea that was etched on the cup. Um, and the other thing we realized as we were spending time thinking um, on, this, on this question of whether the, the vessel was speaking to an individuation or the capacity for being both individual and multitude at the same time, which is the only way that you can, you know, you share the cup, you uh, drink wine in the same cup together, um, you acknowledge the fact that we are all um, connected to each other. And then we were, while thinking on all of this and while going underwater to make a film connected to all of this, we also engaged with the goddess Metis. Goddess Metis is one of those forgotten goddesses from, from Greece, unlike Thales Athene, who is the goddess of, of sovereign knowledge, who comes out of the head of Zeus. Um, Metis is the goddess of small knowledges, the one who's swallowed by Zeus. Uh, she disappears. Uh, we had to we had to bring her out, bring her forth, three D rendered her again. But to me, what I'm trying to say through all of this is that it is when you make a work, it is when you when you sort of reflect while making work, as you ask us about the question of, of the work. But it is in the making of the work that you start to ask yourself, what it is that do I need to be attentive to? Right. The question of small knowledge is the question of, for example, what sailors need to know to survive the sea. It is what we need to know to survive uh, our future. It is what we need to know um, how to be more mushroom, right? It is these knowledges that we need now. I think sovereign knowledge, spectacular and wonderful and seductive though it might be, um, is perhaps not the one that we need to turn to for um, a moment in which we have to look around us and not just above us. Well, I mean, just to continue... I think the most powerful technologies known to human beings are actually um, the ability to imagine realities and to tell stories about them. Everything else more or less follows after that. 
And if we are to think of telling stories about the sea, which isn't just a beachside picture postcard, which isn't a holiday, but is alive to the sea with all its force and power and terror and its beauty, um, you know, in, in the, some of the myths in our part of the world, there's, there's an idea that the gods and the demons churned the oceans and, and both poison as well as the nectar of immortality comes from that churning and everything that's valuable comes from that churning. That's an idea. It's an idea that has survived at least 3,000 years in this part of the world and, you know, wherever it's come from. Uh, from people who were landlocked and who didn't know the ocean, but they imagined the ocean. Um, so that kind of idea that you can imagine the world, the ocean, and outer space and the sky to give you ideas that sustain the way you think about your place in the universe. That's for, for us, I think, in, in rocks, a much more important question because that really changes things. That changes things in time, um, rather than sort of make people think that they can they can look at an artwork and then decide not to use plastic because something else will take the place of the plastic. It's it's really the transformation of the consciousness over generations in time that I think art and literature need can do and do and do want to do. Yes. Thank you so much. And I will now open it up to the floor if there are any questions for Caroline or Monica or Shudder, then please ask away. Hi. I wondered around, because you, you were talking about utopia and dystopia, and some of the things that you've referenced are not kind of mainstream. Like, you've talked about kind of books and films and art, but a lot of it isn't maybe mainstream or kind of in... Um, I don't know, it's not kind of Hollywood blockbusters. And a lot of the time when you do see um, very mainstream popular culture, it's, it is, it is, it's kind of, you know, a disaster happens and then there's very negative outcomes. I'm thinking of like the day after tomorrow or something like that. And I just wonder what you think that means for us as a culture, that the things that are the most popular are the things that are like really devastating. You know, The Last of Us that's currently really popular. It's, it's, no one's very happy after the apocalypse. Um, and, and what does, I mean, it's not really climate associated, but, but what does that mean about us, that the most popular things are the dystopian things? I'm slightly sad if I've given the impression that I don't like popular culture. <laughs> That's absolutely not the case. Um, it's a distinction that sci-fi scholars do make uh, in terms of cinema, in terms of um, to what extent some of these films are, are critical. But yeah, just to step back a bit, I mean, I think if we think more about the utopian impulse as a sort of a hopeful energy, a moment, a pocket in space or time whereby people can see that another world is possible and they're motivated enough to try and imagine how they might collectively act to make that a reality, then I, I do think we can see those in, in various different forms. I mean, to take one example, you know, we teach Mad Max at university, and that's obviously a classic kind of Australian outback dystopia. I mean, the, those early Mad Max films are so batshit. I'm really struck by the, the kind of weird, almost S&M leather aesthetics of them. There's a fetishization. You know, we really enjoy the fact that these people are kind of struggling in this desert world. Um, and by the time you reach, you know, the more recent Fury Road part of the franchise, 
Um, you know, there's that kind of community of women who have to kind of, what is it, they go off to sort of the green place and um, meet with their mothers and grandmothers and kind of get some spiritual sustenance and then come back and reject the patriarch figure. So I'm not suggesting that we can't find these hopeful moments in blockbuster, you know, Hollywood's made cinema. Um, what I'm trying to perhaps suggest is that it's a way of seeing that if we attune our gaze to a particular politicized way of seeing that science fiction makes possible for sure, but that science fictional utopian way of seeing can be applied to other things. It, they don't have to be explicitly texts that have you know, astronauts or tropes of going off you know, into the final frontier in space and that, that kind of thing. If we can think more in that way of seeing that another world could be possible and that indeed the aesthetic ingredients and the narratives and stories that we might need to create that other world are all around us. They're just not always neatly tied up in very convenient texts you know, that, that give us a kind of manual on how to do better. They're often fragmented in, in bits and pieces. And I think just to one final point, I work a lot on novels, and the commitment that you have to give to reading a novel, or even to watching a TV show, you know, if it's several seasons long, is a lot of your time. We've been talking throughout today about the power of narrative and storytelling, but actually it's an investment into the emotional landscape of alterity that we get when we read a novel, and that's why they're so powerful, I think. This relationship that we have with... Uh with that which terrifies us, right? I think it's a really fascinating thing. I mean, and as you can, I don't, I don't know if you all have noticed, but I, or it seems to me at least that there's a lot more acknowledgement of the genres of horror or schlock or even in the mainstream, but it's just, and I, these are much more um, available to us, much more uh, amazingly interesting films being made that would broadly be considered genres, but have now uh, become quite mainstream. And I think, I think it's an interesting thing of, is it that we watch something that terrifies us because it's cathartic, because it makes us feel like if it's been said and uttered and out there and it has been destroyed, that maybe it doesn't, it won't happen to us? That could be one of the reasons why we need to keep making these things so that we can, uh, we can in a sense, put it's like an evil eye you know, like awarding, awarding almost, I think of it as the, 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 the amount of stuff that talks about how terrible things are, or it uses the, the horrific or the unheimlich or the weird as, um, as a kind of, as a warding, as, as a trope. But the other thing also, I think, is um, there are ways, there are, there are definitely anxieties and, and, and angers that need expression, a sense of discomfiture of, of not fitting in. And I think horror, mainstream, in its ways, provides us with those two, I mean, yeah. I mean, I was just going to say that, you know, there's that, I think, apocryphal quote attributable to Frederick Jameson when he said that Hollywood finds it easier to imagine the end of the world than it does to imagine the end of capitalism, also uh, referencing the last panel. Um, so disaster is uh, has also a comforting function because when you sit through two hours of a disaster movie and you come out and the world is quite the way it is, and it, things haven't crashed, uh, things are not going up in flames, and you, then it, got, it gives you a sense of, of, um, of, of perhaps a sense of control. But what I find even more interesting in, in a lot of contemporary science fiction is the idea that it's not about some other time. It's not about some 
other place we've got to get to, but it's about this time here and now. And I, I know that you've been thinking a lot about China Mayville and, and all we, I've always been fascinated by Kraken, which is this book where there's this creature, which actually is this giant squid in, in, in the Natural History Museum. And it is, it is a bearer of, of meaning that is outside the limits of our imagination or our thinking. So it's very interesting for us in Rux to think not just in terms of what might be in the future, but to think about what might be just lurking just outside the limits of our thinking right now. And that's where we get a lot of our energy from. Thank you for joining us, Monica and Shudder. Thank you, Caroline.